Love this podcast? Support it and sponsor today. Simply head to OzCastNetwork.com for details. We make USAA insurance to help you save. Take advantage of discounts when you cover your home and your ride. Discover how we're helping members save at USAA.com slash bundle. Restrictions apply. There's three sides to every story. There's my side, your side, and the truth. Come on, girls. Let's go shopping. That's not a knife. <laughs> this is a knife. What are you looking at? Rolling in a boy, you me. You're mad, you bastard. Far am you. Far am you. There's no cash here. Here, there's no cash. All right? Cash, no. Robo? No cash. Where to cross, Liz? You get a bag of all sorts in here, mate. Welcome to Wook Welcome to The Last New Wave, a podcast that looks at the wide and varied landscape that is Australian cinema. On this episode, we're going to look at an oddity in Australian cinema, the Australian-made, Hollywood-funded film, or Australian-funded Hollywood film, Dark City, directed by Alex Proyas, and starring a few notable Australians, Colin Friels, Melissa George, Bruce Spence. Dark City was jointly funded by New Line Cinema and Mystery Clock Cinema, a.k.a. Alex Proyas' Australian-based production company. With a budget of $27 million, Dark City could be considered a box office bomb, only having scraped by with $27.2 million in receipts. The majority of the film was shot at Fox Studios in Sydney, home of other Australian-made Hollywood films. But we'll get to those in a moment. Alex Proyas is probably most well-known as the director of The Crow, or more recently as a director who was quite vocally opposed to those critics who didn't give his 2016 epic Gods of Egypt a chance. Having directed a low-budget film, Spirits of the Air, Gremlins of the Clouds, a film he'd been trying to get the rights back to for a long time, Proyas was picked up to direct the adaptation of the comic series The Crow. Of course, the history and sad history of that film is well documented. Proyas had already been working on the concept of Dark City prior to completing The Crow, and it was after reading David S. Goyer's Blade script that Proyas had requested he join uh, writer Lem Dobbs in co-writing Dark City. Proyas had conceived the story as an homage to 1940s detective stories, and it's clear that alongside the early 1900 German expressionism that Proyas had pulled ideas from, a wide web of films and concepts. Everything from Metropolis to Richard O'Brien's otherworldly performance in the Rocky Horror Picture Show influenced Dark City. Yet, just like another science fiction film that would be released a year later, also shot in Fox Studios, Dark City feels wholly unique. That other film, of course, was The Matrix. Proyas went on to make uh, one other truly Australian film, Garage Days. That was also unfortunately not a financial success. His other films, I, Robot and Knowing, have their dedicated fans, but arguably have failed to move out of the shadow of The Crow and Dark City as standalone classics. Sure, Roger Ebert was a huge fan of Dark City, and arguably, Proyas' film was at the forefront, forefront of a set of films in the late 90s that questioned the reality of the world we lived in, namely The Matrix and The Thirteenth Floor, all of which shared similar visual aesthetics. After all, The Matrix was shot on many of Dark City's sets. Reviews were mostly favourable for Dark City. Roger Ebert gave it 4 out of 4 stars and even went so far as to record an audio commentary for the film on its Blu-ray release. In his original review, he wrote, Dark City by Alex Proyas is a great visionary achievement 
a film so original and exciting it stirred my imagination, like Metropolis and 2001 A Space Odyssey. If it is true, as the German director Werner Herzog believes, that we live in an age starved of new images, then Dark City is a film to nourish us. Not a story so much as an experience, it is a triumph of art direction, set design, cinematography, special effects and imagination. Also drawing comparisons to Ridley Scott's classic Blade Runner. Noted Australian film critic David Stratton gave it 4 out of 5 stars on the movie show, with Margaret Pomeranz giving it 4.5 out of 5. Yes, and we'll take a quick listen to that review right now. Dark City is an ingeniously conceived film, an original that reverberates like a familiar nightmare. It's brilliantly designed by George Little and special effects designer Patrick Totopoulos and evocatively and energetically shot by Darius Wolski. I've complained about William Hurt as a sleepwalking actor. Here he gives texture to his restraint. Kiefer Sutherland turns in his best performance in recent memory as Schreiber. British actor Rufus Sewell balances his difficult central role quite beautifully and Jennifer Connolly smoulders as his wife. I was really looking forward to Dark City. Alex Proyas demonstrated his imaginative vision with The Crow, one of the better-looking films to come out of Hollywood. It's so good to see him push the boundaries visually, intellectually and emotionally even further with this, his latest, David. I think Alex Proyas may be a genius when it comes to design of films, that are really, truly inventive, imaginative, things quite differently and quite originally. And I think on that level, this is a very exciting film. But I also think he's not, but I also think he's not so good when it comes to telling stories and with actors. And unlike you, I didn't think the actors were terribly good, any of them, in this. And I thought the story was, was absolutely fascinating, but it was a cold, um, sort of, uninvolving story. It's a sort of Kafka-like piece, which, which uh, I wanted to become much more involved with than I did. I loved the way the film looks, Margaret. I thought it was quite staggering, and I'm giving it four uh, just for all of that. But I think it could have been better. I don't agree with you. I liked it on a lot of levels. Four and a half stars. The question then remains, is Dark City an Australian film? It was shot in Australia, it was partly financed by Australian financiers, it has an Australian cast, and it's directed by an Australian. But depending on who you ask in Australia, these Hollywood films are either completely Australian, partly Australian, or a blight on our landscape. One could argue that Australia is the Vancouver of the Southern Hemisphere, always the bridesmaid, never the bride. While Australia does have a film industry of its own, one could also argue that Australia's presentation is something other than, well, Australia is what has become most notable for. After all, Sydney was turned into a sprawling digital metropolis with the Wachowski siblings Matrix series, which was partly filmed there. When George Lucas decided to make a new trilogy of Star Wars films, he did so by setting up shop at Fox Studios in Sydney and filming all the green screen work there, namely pretty much everything (laughs) on screen. It's worthwhile noting as well that the first film made at Fox Studios in Sydney was Mighty Morphin Power Rangers the movie. So you can have Australia to partly thank for whatever big purple monster was in that film. Other notable productions include Mission Impossible 2, Moulin Rouge, an Australian film through and through, even though it's set in ye olde France, and everybody's favourite digital atrocity, kangaroo-ish creature, whatever it is that's in Kangaroo Jack. And it doubled as well as the home of Metropolis in Superman Returns. If you were to go on Rotten Tomatoes scores alone then one could say that there's something a little concerning about the amount of poorly received sequels made at Fox Studios. 
Of course, the Star Wars prequels, the Matrix sequels, Son of the Mask, X-Men Origins Wolverine. I could probably go on, but I won't. Up the coast in Queensland, Village Roadshow Studios set up shop, becoming a notable studio for producing films that could utilise some of the larger water tanks they had. Some of the films that were partly made there include the horror gore fest House of Wax, the Scooby-Doo films, Matthew McConaughey's attempt to further globalise his tan in Fool's Gold, The Chronicles of Narnia, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, a real genuine film, people, San Andreas, Pirates of the Caribbean, Dead Men Tell No Tales, also a real genuine film, and the yet-to-be-released Aquaman and Thor Ragnarok. Outside of being the home of the Spirig Brothers' Daybreakers, Village Roadshow Studios has mostly been the home away from home for Hollywood films. Indeed, thanks to digital trickery and creative use of locations, there is little to suggest within these films that they were ever even shot in Australia. Of course, it's not just big-budget Hollywood films that were filmed in Australia. Terence Malick's epic return to cinema with The Thin Red Line was filmed in Queensland, which filled in for South Asia. Heck, even Australian films fill in for Australian films, with films like this year's The Light Between Oceans being partially filmed in Tasmania, which is filling in for the hail as available Western Australia here, which is in turn often represented on screen by South Australia. See horror, horror film Wolf Creek and the refugee comedy Lucky Miles. At the end of all of this, we're no closer to finding out exactly what an Australian film can be or, rather, what factors dictate what elements join together to construct an Australian film. If it's having an Australian director helm the film, then Wake and Fright suddenly becomes a Canadian tale and Legally Blonde becomes a light Australian parable. (laughs) Is it having an Australian cast? Then, if that's the case, throw out half of the films that Australia has made and include LA Confidential's an Australian classic. So then, is it who funds the film? Given the government funding to the Australian film industry, it's easy to say that they are Australian films. But not so quick, because it depends on how much money is provided by the Australian government. Because if we were to say that an Australian film is decided by funding, then both Aquaman and Thor Ragnarok would be Australian tales, thanks to substantial grants given by the Australian government. Part of this podcast is to discuss truly Australian films, but it's not possible to discuss all Australian films without discussing works that aren't clearly identified as an Australian story. Films like The Great Gatsby, or this episode's Dark City, or even the foreign language film Laura. All are examples of films that aren't Australian stories, but were, for all intents and purposes, Australian films. I'm sure this is a circular argument that could go round and round. After all, I mean, given the uh, 2016 Actor Awards, uh, Hacksaw Ridge is definitely the best Australian film that we've got to offer. So, without going into an existential crisis, we'll wrap up that discussion right there. Bernadette, do you have anything to mention about Dark City uh, before Dave Hart, who is my guest for this episode, and I discuss the film at length? Well, I've, I think you've raised some interesting questions, and if as kind of you know convoluted as that whole discussion was in terms of you know what is an Australian film, I think that that in itself is representative of the difficulties that we have as an industry. The fact that we either can't necessarily or struggle to identify what is an Australian story, but also that we don't necessarily 
have the confidence maybe I'm not a creative I don't create films so I can't speak on their behalf but I'm assuming that perhaps some you know there's there has been a little bit of backlash about Hacksaw Ridge Ridge winning you know best Australian film at the actors this year just because it happened recently is why I bring it up but me myself as a you know film lover and an Australian there is almost this constant need for validation or if there is a little bit of Australia in a film like oh that's a little bit of us like, yeah. you know, it's a little bit like with a needy hmm. <laughs> needy sidekick or, you know, needy child of, of cinema. Um, and so, you know, it is tricky. Personally, on Dark City, I, I can't necessarily talk about it in great detail because I haven't watched it for... You rewatched it hmm. to discuss um, on the podcast. So I'm sure you're going to have much more insightful. And Dave, um, who was... That was his first viewing, is that correct? I believe Dave? so, yeah, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. So you, you'll be... Um, Treated to Dave and Andrew's discussion, one uh, uh, rewatch and one the first watch. Mm. Um, I I really like Dark City. I think it's it falls into that category of which is a bit of an unfortunate category, but I think it's very common. There are some films that are timeless, yeah, and you can rewatch them and they don't lose anything, um, regardless of how many times they they may have been sort of alluded to or, or recreated or homaged or whatever you want to call it. Hmm. Um, and there are other films that, that perhaps are a little bit ahead of their time or come at a come at a time when there are similar themes that are being explored by other filmmakers. And I think that's the case with Dark City. I I, I wouldn't want to take away anything from Porus's achievement in Dark City. He's at particularly not just the production. I think the script is pretty good too. Yeah. And the story as a whole. Um, just because the Matrix happened to follow or, yeah. you know, whatever it may be. Because that's pretty common. I think, unfortunately, sometimes we have to just remember what we felt when we first saw a film. Yeah. And be, well, that was an amazing experience. That's what art is. It's consuming it, enjoying it, having that, you know, visceral experience, having a discussion afterwards Sometimes when we rewatch it in the future, because of what's gone on, whether it be, you know, similar stories being told or similar themes explored, or all the press that Porus has had recently with his sort of backlash against critics, mm. I think both of those maybe colour people's interpretation of this film should they, re- should they go to watch it um, now, maybe as a first-time viewer, or as, you know, perhaps you haven't seen it since it first came out. Yeah. Or perhaps you've only seen The Crow. Yeah. Um, it's it's interesting. And, and just to, to, to comment a little bit about his, you know, I haven't read, I don't really know all that much about his, you know, reaction to critics. But, you know, my, my thought is he works, I assume he works hard on his films. If he wants to, you know, disagree with critics, then that's, you know... You can't accuse him of being precious if you're being precious about your output, which is just output commenting on someone else's output. I'm not saying he's necessarily correct or that it's appropriate to, you know, mm. block people and badmouth, you know, critics as a as a whole. But, you know, if you... It's, these sort of artists are in a unique position in that you don't necessarily have, in other art forms... So many people feeling that they have the right to tear down your creative piece. Not only professional critics, but people like us who have 
who are just fans and who feel like we've seen enough films and enjoy enough films that that we need to dedicate, you know, time in our lives to broadcast <laughs> these, you know, these thoughts. So, you know, maybe he's being a bit of a dick about it from what I've read. But, you know, if someone came to my workplace and was, you know, telling me I was this was garbage after I worked, you know, pretty hard on it, maybe I'd be a bit pissed off too. And if I wanted to sort of throw a tandy about it, then I'm entitled to do that. Sure, I guess, I mean, this has mostly been spawned because of Gods of Egypt. Mm-hmm. And I haven't seen Gods haven't of seen Egypt yet. Either. Only and because it's not a film that, that, that genre doesn't entice me, so yeah. I'm not going to see it. Yeah. I'm curious to watch it, only because I think it could be fun. And... No, I really don't care if it's... I mean, I do care, and I understand the, the arguments of whitewashing, but as but a... Is that the only film that's had whitewashing exactly. this year? No. And, and as a fun kind of epic, it looks it looks all right. I'm not saying you shouldn't bring it up. But with a critical consensus, I think it's in the 20% region on Rotten Tomatoes. So there are a lot of people who dislike it. It's hard to then come around and defend it. Again, it's... I mean, that's not the discussion point of this episode, but... Just just out of curiosity. Yeah. If you're someone who liked The Crow, and that's maybe the only thing that you've ever seen of Porus's work, you know, being an Australian film podcast, seek out Garage Days. Seek out... And Garage Days is really hard to find as well. Well, which is a sad thing, because I think it's actually, you know, it's it's not on the level of Dark City or The Crow, but I found it really enjoyable at the time when it came out. And it's a film I wouldn't mind re-watching if I, you know, could find it. I think we've got it on DVD. We do, yeah. Yeah. And I think the DVD is actually out of print, because I I did want to actually cover that film on the podcast, because for me, I think it's a quite... Solid little film. And it shows a director who didn't want to be pigeonholed into doing some sort of films, you know, like moving from the Dark City and The Crow. He didn't want to be doing just dark science fiction. No, and and yet he still wanted something with an edge and that was, you know, a bit... That could be maybe commercial had had it hit the right note. When you compare it to something, say, like Suburban Mayhem, mm. which I feel like, even though it's a different topic, kind of maybe tried to go for a similar edge to it, or an Australian yeah. young people, disenfranchised youth, all that sort of stuff, I think it succeeds far better than that film, and yet that film got a lot of praise at the time that it came out. Yes, it did. Yeah, too much praise, in my opinion. <laughs> <laughs> uh, one last to- point that I, I want to mention, and I think you know could make an interesting episode in the future, is to discuss... Uh, the changeover of from so essentially in Australia we used to have our film awards were called the AFI the Australian Film Institute and then six years ago it changed over to being the Actors the Australian Academy of Cinema and Television Arts and in that time we've had films like uh, you know obviously this year we had Hacksaw Ridge last year was Mad Max Fury Road which is great I'm glad that it did win. And then a couple of years before that was The Great Gatsby. Mm. And I guess the discussion point, again, I might save it for a future episode to explore this a little bit further. But one of the things I'm curious about is whether with this changeover to the Actor Awards, they're trying to stretch into having an influence on the Academy Awards. Because they certainly felt like that with The Water Diviner and The Babadook. Both were pushed into kind of... Uh, being Academy Award potential films. And, of course, 
neither uh, got nominated for mm. anything, but Mad Max Fury Road certainly did, and it's looking like Hacksaw Ridge could get some technical nominations at least. Um, but again, it's a discussion for yeah. a different time. I think it depends on how much people love the film. Yeah. I think people didn't really love The Great Gatsby. Maybe they liked it and they admired it, so they had a bit of an issue with it winning. The same with Hacksaw Ridge. It's a good... From what you've told me, I haven't seen it, but you said it's a good film. It's not necessarily hmm. a great film. It's certainly not know, better could, than Goldstone. Could, well, no, but you know, that film got sort of you know really screwed in terms yeah. of the number of nominations, maybe because it's sequel, sort of a semi-sequel or whatever it may be. But, yeah, with Mad Max Fury Road, I think that film was just so beloved yeah. and so amazing that we were kind of like, yes, that's an Australian film. Give it yeah. all the... Who cares if it's yeah. not, you know, necessarily, you know, purely... Yeah. If it's got some of these things you were talking about where there is, you know, influence from, you know, foreign... Mm. Whatever Investors be. and yeah. cast <laughs> and everything. So that wraps up our introduction to this episode on Dark City. We're just going to listen to a little bit of Jennifer Connelly singing uh, in the film Dark City, one of the sort of roles, for want of a better term, uh, that she plays is a uh, nightclub jazz singer. So let's listen to Jennifer Connelly sing, and then I'll be back with Dave from Pop Culture Case Study to discuss the film at length. One more and more rhythm start to play. back everybody and thanks again for listening to the first half of this dark city episode and we're back with a return guest would you believe the first time on the show that i've got a return guest and it is dave from pop culture case study he's currently waving his fist in the air i'm not sure if that's a sign of aggression or not but uh, <laughs> yeah so welcome no it's I'm, I'm happy to be the first return guest that's I'm glad you. I'm the first person you invited back after, after like months. It's been a of long not being time. on the show. It's good to be back. <laughs> I know it's been a, it's been an age since I've last spoken to you. But <laughs> yes, thank you again for for joining me on this episode and discussing Alex Proyas's Dark City, which he he wrote, he directed, and uh, he's not starring in. Um, but you know. I'm sure that he's possibly one of those creepy men in the, the black costumes there. It wouldn't surprise me. Yeah, <laughs> his director's cameo there. Um, so the usual question that I ask the, the guests on the show is, have you heard of Dark City prior to me bothering you and asking you to be on the show? Yes. So this one I had heard of, unlike the, the last time I was on the show, because um, I was a big fan of The Crow when it came out, which was uh, the film Alex Proyas did before this. And I remember hearing, like, kind of, you know, my, my film-going friends, like, not just the people who see, you know, the the big-budget type films, but my film-going friends back when I was in high school, which is about the time this came out, talk about how much they love Dark City. And I always meant to see it, but just never got around to it. And then years passed, and then you brought it up, and I was like, oh, yeah, I was, that was on my list. I was supposed to watch that movie. So I was I was actually really looking forward to watching Dark City. So heard of it, but knew absolutely nothing about it. So, I mean... <laughs> 
this is the sort of film I saw it when it was originally in cinemas, um, and I loved it. You know, when it was on there, and and really enjoyed it. And I think I saw it twice in the cinemas. Um, and it feels like the sort of film that has a bit of a cult following in a way. Uh, oh, it definitely does. Yeah. yeah. So I'm curious whether that played into your feelings of the film prior to watching it. And, you know, because I know that cult films, when you come to them and you know that there is a, a rabid fan base out there who is very, very popular, you know, very, you know, in love with the particular film, it's difficult to come to those sorts of films without that yeah. that whole group's opinion of it in mind. So how did mm-hmm. you deal with that? Yeah, so I think to me there's two kinds of cult films. There's the cult films of like this is a bad movie and we enjoy it because it's bad a la Rocky Horror Picture Show. And then there's the the cult movies that like missed their audience when it came out in cinemas and then people found it later and were like, no, this is a really good movie that a lot of people missed. And I felt like Dark City – uh, the the likers of Dark City are definitely in that second category, that latter group. Um, so it's hard because my expectations are definitely a little bit raised mm. given that, I mean, Alex Proyas, I mean, to say he's an up and down director is maybe the understatement of the century. <laughs> but, you know, after Gods of Egypt this year. But, you know, I the, the Crow, although has not aged super well, still will always have this kind of special place in my cold, dark heart. Uh, so, so it definitely, the expectations were raised and I was expecting a lot out of dark city. So you just have to, but then again, you have to kind of keep in mind, okay, this movie was made in, what was this? 98. Yeah. This came out. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, So you have to keep in mind, like, you know, in terms of the way films were made in, in the late nineties and the way they're made now are very different. They look very different structurally. So you have to kind of keep the time period in mind too. And I think that's always a challenge when you're looking at a movie that's now almost 20 years old. Yeah. And it was released in February of 1998 in the U.S. as well. So, you know, it's it's not a end of year 1998 film. It's it's beginning. <laughs> it's prior to Dark, uh, Deep Impact and Armageddon and all those films as well. <laughs> right. Uh, the, the summer of 1998. I think it was – I think I'm getting my year correct. I'm, uh, I'm sure somebody out there will let me know. Uh, so, <laughs> you know – what were when you did watch it? What were your thoughts on it? Did you enjoy it? Did it live up to the cult hype? Um, it did not live up to the cult <laughs> hype. I I found it fine. I th- I thought it was you know it was worth watching, but it didn't. I was waiting for it to wow me, and it just never did. There are there are things I really like about it, but I think from a script perspective, it has some issues. It has some pacing and some tone issues that are going on. That from my perspective, I'm kind of like wait that character was the main character for most of the film. And then he just disappears. Speaking of kind of the inspector, like we have a lot of stuff with the inspector and then there's like this 40 minute time period where he just disappears. Yeah. And then near the end of the film just kind of pops up again. I'm like, Oh yeah, that guy, yeah, what, just where's William Burbank? Like, yeah. 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 <laughs> and it was, so I think it like construction wise, it had some issues, but I also really like big idea science fiction. And this fits into that. Like, I think, I think Alex Proyas had the right idea. I think if, maybe someone else had written the script or if it had gone through a couple more edits like this could be like a fantastic movie Mm. but it just it never really reaches those heights for me so i feel like it's a better idea than it is a film if that makes sense yeah and part of me does wonder in a way because when i schedule out the films that i was discussing for this this first run of films on the podcast you know, I was trying to pick a varied run of, of, of films, and that's why there's films like Wake in Fright sitting alongside Welcome to Whoop Whoop, sitting alongside The Castle and Lantana and 
then we've got this science fiction film, which, you know, Australian cinema is not really known for doing this kind of film. And, right. and that's part of why I chose Dark City, because, yeah, I, I do remember sitting down in the cinema and, and absolutely loving it and feeling kind of, you know, re, revitalized in a way. And we'll get on to more of that in, in, when we go on to talk about the production design, because there is a lot to talk about in that aspect. Yeah. Um, but I hadn't seen it since the, the Blu-ray came out, which was back in like 2006, 2007, I think. It was mm. like one of the first major Blu-ray releases, or, or maybe 2010, thereabouts. I'm not sure exactly. And part of the main reason I, I rewatched it on Blu-ray was because it's got a Roger Ebert commentary. And which and is Roger a, Ebert loved this movie. Loved it. Like to it death. was his. It was his movie of the year. Yeah. In the year it came out, like he, I was shocked by that. I was yeah. like, "Wow, you really went to bat for Dark City." Yeah. And <laughs> and given the fact that I think he only did maybe two other commentaries, which was like Citizen yeah. Kane and something else. You know, it's putting Dark City. <laughs> those in some those cool... shitty movies. <laughs> yeah. Citizen Kane. <laughs> you know, it's putting it into some pretty uh, pretty you know, elite classes there in a way. And, mm-hmm. you know, I do, for, for people who are interested in special features on DVDs and Blu-rays, I highly recommend the commentary is very, very interesting. But with that in mind, I hadn't actually watched the film by itself without the commentary or anything, any interactions or anything like that since I saw it in the cinema. And so I'd seen it in the cinema, then I listened to Roger Ebert talk about it and now in 2016, I sat down to to rewatch it, and yeah, I kind of had the same feeling. It's it's an okay mm. film, like, and part of me about halfway through was like, is it a bit too late to to say to Dave, hey, you know, if you're not <laughs> feeling it, it's okay. Maybe try something else. <laughs> we can <laughs> we can you know shift tactics, but unfortunately, the problem is is that as I was mentioning, you know, Australia really doesn't do science fiction all that much, right? So we don't have very many genre films to to pluck out and and pull out uh, and and recommend to people. So with that in mind, I guess you know coming coming to Dark City as well with the Matrix, which came out a year later, and it's very mm-hmm. thematically similar in a way. Yeah, it's hard to yeah come to it in that that same that same sense. So I'm I'm glad yeah. that we're both coming to it in. Equal ground. Yeah, I was a little worried. I thought I was going to come on here and be like, it was okay. And you were going to be like, get off my show. How dare you? <laughs> this is a classic of Australian cinema. I also think, I, you know, I like Kiefer Sutherland, but I think he's horrifically miscast in this movie. Like, he's hard to watch for me. And I gener- generally like him as a performer. But, like, it seems like every line they just told him, like, hey, could you say this as fast and as awkward as you can? Like, I get they're trying to make him seem nervous and worried, and that comes across. But, like, the line readings are, like, genuinely hard to watch for me. And I think everyone else is actually pretty well cast. Like, I like Rufus Sewell, um, if that's how you pronounce his name. I'm not yeah. sure if that's correct. Uh, he, he actually reminds me a little bit of Oscar Isaac, to bring up a, a sure. name of now, both in look and how and and his acting style. Jennifer Connelly is good, but she's essentially there to look beautiful, and she does. Like, yeah. <laughs> she's there to be, like, the songstress and the, the, the kind of thing that our 
our protagonist is striving towards as opposed to an actual character. And I really like William Hurt, um, but I could just listen. I could listen to William Hurt read the phone book mm-hmm. and I would be totally fine because I love the man's voice and it's he's an enjoyable screen presence. But so for me, Kiefer Sutherland really stands out as and it that was like the calling card of this movie for a while was like, go see this weird science fiction movie. It has Kiefer Sutherland in it. That's what I remember hearing like in yeah. the late 90s. And to me, he's the weakest part of the film. See, I, I, I actually disagree with you there in a way because part of what I think works so well about his performance here is, and it's something that really doesn't hit until repeat viewings, um, is because the later part reveal where he, they these beings that came and created this world, essentially, mm-hmm. um, they have Keith the Sutherland there. And, you know, it's never explained how they got the humans there, but, you know, <laughs> you could... You could deduce that essentially they've been abducted from Earth, possibly somewhere. And so Kiefer Sutherland, they've got him. He's a scientist. And what they want is, of course, somebody who knows science and just science alone. And so they break his brain, essentially, to create him the way that he is. So for me, that stilted but still fast and awkward dialogue didn't seem nervous, but more like a broken computer in a way. Or a broken mm. time. So maybe frame. on a second viewing, that comes through. I also just feel like the movie, it's like it tried to be four different movies. It tried to like, there's like all these genres thrown in. Like you have the kind of lost memory mm. aspect. You have the like, you know, uh, connected to that, you have the like, am I a murderer yeah. <laughs> aspect. And then you've got like the science fiction stuff. And then you've got the love story. And they tried to cram it all into like an hour and 40 minutes. And because of that, I feel like the movie feels much longer than it is yeah like there was a point in the movie where i had to pause it because i had to walk out of the room and i was stunned that only like 48 minutes had gone by i was like there's still an hour left in this like and i think because there's so many genres and so much story thrown in that it doesn't really master any of them it it becomes the kind of jack of all trades master of none Mm. so you're left wanting more from every piece of this story which is unfortunate but I don't want it to sound like I didn't enjoy the movie. I still did like it. I think there's a lot to like about the movie, but it just never the puzzle never quite comes together for me. Yeah, and I think I think part of the issue as well is that you know for the majority of the film, the characters are asking how to get to Shell Beach and mm-hmm. how to get to a certain location, and that's not something that gradually you know, builds up as the film goes along. It's something that is there from the beginning. And, mm-hmm. you know, I guess in a way it's kind of meant to feel like an Easter egg. And then when it occurs at the end, you're like, oh, yeah. right, of course. But unfortunately, at the beginning, we're already going how to get to Shell Beach, how to get to Shell Beach. And, <laughs> yeah. you know, it not to criticize the film, because I do enjoy it. I think it is a good film, but it does feel like, you know, the kids in the back of the car going, how long till we get there? How long till we get there? It's just a continual, <laughs> yeah. you know. The family trip to Shell Beach. Yes. Exactly. And, you <laughs> but know. I, I, did do, I did do a little bit of research after I watched the film, and it, it sounds like Alex Proyas was pressured to, like, dumb the film down by the studio. Mm. So it makes me wonder what kind of movie he would have made if he had artistic freedom there. Because there are a lot of moments where you're like, uh, yeah, I got that. You don't need to have a character explain what's going on here. Yeah. So I think a lot of that could be like studio interference stuff. Yeah. And 
the theatrical version has quite a bit of a narration on top of it as well and and not to yeah. compare you know not to compare dark city to blade runner i'm i'm not the world's biggest fan of blade runner but of course well you're a terrible person <laughs> so it's fine no but but well, I, I see yeah. where you're going yeah. though with the with the voiceover narration exactly yeah. which explains what is going on and that of course is a film that's got fabled you know, history of, of studio manipulation and stuff. All nine versions that exactly. are available of Blade Runner. But just get the one without the voiceover narration because it's trash. Yeah. <laughs> and the the director's cut, which is on the Blu-ray, does have the narration removed for some parts. Um, mm-hmm. spe- specifically the beginning, which doesn't, you know, which then removes the explanation of who these people are and mm-hmm. creates a little bit more of a mystery. But... I kind of yeah. like that, actually, and I, I really enjoy the opening of this film, mm. like, you know, our main character waking up and you trying to piece everything together with him. I think that stuff all really works, and it's another reason that, for me, the bar was set so high, because the first five minutes of this movie are really excellent. Yeah. Like, it's a really great setup for the mystery of the film. You are confused, aren't you? Frightened. That's all right. I can help you. Who is this? I am a doctor. Now you must listen to me. You have lost your memory. There was an experiment. Something went wrong. Your memory was erased. Do you understand me? No, I don't understand. What the hell is going on here? Just listen. There are people coming for you, even as we speak. You must not let them find you. You must leave now. Hello? Are you there? So, in that regard, you know, it does sound like... We both agree that, you know, Alex Proyas did kind of have his hands tied a little bit. And, you know, yeah. of course, you mentioned Gods of Egypt. It's not a film that I've I've <laughs> actually seen. I will watch it because, for me, I do think that Alex Proyas does feel like a director who has constantly been hampered by studio involvement in certain ways. Of course, yeah. you know, his other films, Gods of Egypt... Uh, I robot as well knowing mm. say what you will I actually enjoy knowing I think it's an all right film but it's one of my least favorite films I've ever seen that's okay I can't stand it <laughs> I can sympathize <laughs> with that that's all right but I enjoy it but they all do kind of feel like films that have had some kind of studio involvement in a way so in that but regard, the other thing is they're all big idea films like I yeah. despise knowing but I remember seeing the trailer for it and going like wow, what a great idea. Like, I'm totally in. Mm-hmm. So I just, I, I, I almost wish Alex Proyas would uh, retire as a director and then just pitch ideas to studios and then give it to someone else because all of his ideas are really good. Granted, some of these are previous properties, like iRobot. Obviously, that's not his yeah. idea. But it seems like a lot of his films are like kind of fun, like out there, science fiction-y idea movies. And I like that. I like that they exist. Yeah, and... I think that's, in a way, that's kind of what Australian cinema doesn't have uh, because mm. we are limited in, in budget and we are limited in scope in a way and, and we do kind of lack visionary directors in that sense. I mean, of course, yes, we've got Baz Luhrmann, but he's visionary in a completely different manner. Um, yes. And, you know, so I, I do wonder, like, what do you think that Alex Prose could have removed or added to this film to to just make it soar that little bit more mm. i'm putting see. you on the spot here yeah yeah no that's, <laughs> like that that's wasn't fine. in the list I, of questions that, that yeah. you sent me. <laughs> i just feel like he is not particularly good at balancing an ensemble cast 
Um, when you have a movie like The Crow, you have The Crow. Yeah. <laughs> and everyone else is kind of secondary. Where if you wanted to make this just a mystery about how our main character figures out who he is, that's fine. But it seemed like he wasn't interested in that. Hmm. He wanted to make this mystery story and make this detective story. And make this science fiction story. So it's. I think it's just a matter of balancing the scenes and having your audience remember what's going on and all the things that are that are at play. And I, I think if he had like honestly, if he had one or two more scenes with William Hurt, I think this movie works a lot better for me. Yeah. Instead, it just feels like either stuff was left on the cutting room floor. And anytime your audience is wondering what was cut out of your movie, you've got a problem. Because that means they're not engaged in the moment. And this is a movie I've never seen before. And I was watching it with Britt, with my wife. And she had kind of the similar reaction of like, wow, this is where, – where did he go? Like yeah. <laughs> all of a sudden he's back. And it really throws your audience for a loop. Um, I, I was actually much more interested in the – in our kind of villain characters than I, w- than I was our hero characters. And I feel like you could have used a little more background and a little uh, – a couple more scenes with them because they were like wonderfully creepy and I liked the yeah. special effects that were used. And we'll get into production value later I'm sure. But most of that has to do with those characters and that's the most interesting part of the film for me. Yeah, I agree. And you know, part of me does wonder in a way that – because the the of course the story is about these people who are having memories implanted into their mind, new world create new worlds created around them while they're forced to sleep, you know. And and part of me does wonder if that if Alex Prose has kind of overcompensated in a way to to make the audience feel what these characters are feeling, you know. In mm-hmm. but they're never confused when they wake up because their memories are already there. There is no right. vague understanding of, you know, who they were in a previous, well, yesterday, really. They don't remember who they were yesterday because they <laughs> right. they don't realize that there was a yesterday, that they were somebody else. So, you know. This also, this also feels like one of those movies that if you watch it, you know, 15 times, like I'm sure many people who were really into it did, it becomes a movie you can kind of fill in the blanks yeah. a lot. Like you can make stuff up. It reminds me of another film. It reminds me of like Donnie Darko. Like I was really into that movie yeah. when it came out and there's so many gaps in it that you can kind of, you know, in your head kind of twist it and figure, Oh, this works and this works. And then when you put it all together and try and like write it out, you're like, nah, that none of that makes sense actually. Yeah. Like yeah. none of that, <laughs> none of that is logical. And it's that type of movie, which is like a fun, uh, kind of, uh, exercise, but like as like just as a film for a regular audience, like I'm not sure it all works together. Yeah, yeah. So, but it's fun. Movies like this should exist. Movies that make you think. Movies that aren't perfect, but you can see like the grains of these great ideas. I'm glad movies like this are around. And I'm glad I watched it. Yeah, and I agree. And I'm I am glad that it exists because you know, especially in today's day and age. And yeah, of course, this is almost 20 years old now, but. You know, in today's day and age, original sci-fi films just aren't that... Don't exist? Yeah, they don't really <laughs> exist. And, yeah. you know, and it's going back to the comparison with The Matrix in a way, it's now that The Matrix has been out where there is this artificial world and these these people that are unknown control it in a way, there, there are similarities between the two. But of course, Dark City came out before it, so it did feel mm-hmm. very unique in that regard. Um, I think it still feels unique, even yeah. with 
if even with the Matrix, even after seeing this after one good Matrix movie and 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 then the other two, yeah. uh, I think this still feels unique and it still feels its own. Um, I could see how the creators of the Matrix were influenced by this, yeah. But I can definitely like this stands on its own visually for sure. Yeah. So in that regard, I think we've touched on direction enough, and I'm not sure if there's really much more to say about the acting. I don't know if there's any real standout people as such because they for me at least they aren't really portraying characters as a whole they're just yeah. contr- they're, they're more portraying ideas and that's not a criticism of right. the actors at all it's just no what the story is but but the acting is secondary in this film to yeah. the the world at large for yeah. sure and i think that alex Price is a smart enough director to realize that as well he's not and the, <laughs> the actors are smart enough to realize that too and you know, I do feel sorry for somebody like Rufus Sewell in a way because he is he he does have good screen presence and yeah, you know, he's not really somebody you know, as far as I understand, he's not really around all that much anymore and he does kind of feel like that that character actor in a way who should have been around and when you're in big budget films like this, well, I mean, this is He was also in Gods of Egypt, so well, there you go. Hey, look, if there's one thing for sure, Alex Proyas is faithful in... in he's loyal, hiring. yes. Yeah. <laughs> so if you work with him, he's, you know... yeah, You'll be back. He, you'll be back, <laughs> exactly. So we'll, t- we'll talk about the main thing about this film, which is the production design, which is the thing that, for me, is the most memorable element of it because yeah. it is, it's in the title. You know, it's Dark City, and this <laughs> is a dark, dark film. Um, so what's your, your impression? What do you feeling about the production design here? Uh, it's kind of genius. And you know how hard that is to do, to watch a movie 20 years later and be wowed by production value? That that doesn't happen. Yeah. Because we, we always, we make these leaps and bounds and we look at movies from five years ago and go like, well, that looks like shit now. Like, <laughs> because mm-hmm. of what we can do. But I just, I love the shifting city. I love the, the sequences of the doors appearing. Like, it has this kind of, it's both like noir and futuristic at the same time, which yeah. is a mix that can go wrong really quickly. Yep. And it, you could really tell that Alex Proyas spent most of his time. It, it's like, it's like when you're reading a book by a fantasy author where you're like, these characters suck. The story's not great, but the world building that is amazing. And it's, this is that type of movie where there's never a moment where you feel like you're inside of a film it feels like this world really exists and it's something that these characters are actually interacting in. Like the, the city, the dark city is actually a character in this film Mm. because it's literally constantly shifting. And I just love that idea. And like, we talked a lot about Alex Proyas doing big idea movies and this like in a way is a small idea. It's like in the background constantly happening. And so it begun, it begins to make sense why not only people can't remember because their memories are being wiped, but every morning they wake up and everything is completely different. Yeah. And that's just such a cool thing to put in a film. Yeah. And, you know, going back to that, that visual aspect, it does work so well, you know, in today's day and age that it, it doesn't feel hokey and it doesn't look no. cheap or fake at all. And, you know, this is this wasn't really given all that huge a budget. So, uh, you know, and it's kind of part of me actually wants to know how they did it. But yeah, I also don't want to know because the mystery is part of what makes this so interesting and so enjoyable. Yeah. 
And, you know, this is a film where, you know, one of my favourite moments, and we'll touch on it when it gets to favourite scenes again, I'm, I'm sure, but one of my favourite moments is when one of the, the villains gets squashed by two buildings, mm. you know? It's that like, was pretty great. Yeah. yeah that's it. And it was kind of, and like, not only enjoyable because it's the villain, but like kind of brutal to watch too. Yeah. Like they didn't shy away from the blood in that moment. Like it, so it gave it some, like some real heft and made things feel real. Mm. Mm, exactly and you know i guess in that regard the the villains are, are certainly they're unique looking that's for sure yeah. and yeah. they're very very striking and one of the curious aspects which i i really only noticed on this most recent viewing was that the majority of them are, are portrayed by australian actors um yeah like bruce spence is in there yeah and david wenham as well and yeah you know and I, I found that really interesting in the in regards to the fact that you know these these enemies are you know I'm not su- suggesting there's a, a context here or you know subtext to the film at all but the enemies are are all Australians and the <laughs> you know the the main actors are all American or British and you know I just thought that was a little bit interesting in a way and yeah. I think he also I think from a script direction from the villain perspective, they it really taps into a very uh a very kind of low level human fear. This idea of this race of people that have like a single focus and almost like a single thought process. Like they share thoughts, which is what separates them from us because human beings are all about individuality. And I think it's a really interesting ploy that they use that we're terrified of that, but what they're trying to get is the opposite. What they're trying to get from the humans is that individuality so they can survive. So I thought that was like another really cool idea that was put in place via the script. The other thing I find quite interesting as well is that, you know, alongside that, they are emotionless beings in a way, you know, Mm -hmm. they don't display hurt or anger or, or, you know, happiness or anything like that. But they are aware of their own mortality. They are, mm-hmm. you know, if if we are to take what they say as gospel, they are the last of their beings. So, you know, right. and, and the reasoning for keeping these humans around is to help further their existence in a way. Um, you know, besides the fact that there's no women in the group, that might possibly be why they're almost extinct. Um, <laughs> just a thought. Could but, be. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but you know, I, I did, I did come to this and think, well, that's actually quite a sad prospect because, and, mm-hmm. and it raises a very interesting question in a way, in the sense that these beings are keeping these people simply for their survival. Yet, is that correct? Is that right? Or, you know, are these the beings? You know, the humans, are they allowed to have a life of their own? Um, right. And, you know, I'm not saying this is like a animal rights, you know, comparison or anything like that. But, you know, if you really want to, going back to what you're saying about Donnie Darko, if you really want to impart something onto the film, then you certainly can because you're filling in yeah. certain gaps. Um, what do you think about that that sort of idea? And did you get any other ideas as well from the film in that in that regard? Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's a really interesting t- thing to look at in terms of perspective, Right. Like, I think it's very easy. Like, we immediately are aligned with the human characters because they look like us. And, you know, most of them don't have these weird, crazy powers. So we're like, okay, this is this is who we follow. But then if you look at it from the perspective of our villains, it's like the idea that 
everyone is the hero of their own story, even the villain. Right. Mm -hmm. So it becomes like you can kind of by the end of the film, I think you can kind of understand why they've taken the steps they have, even if you feel like morally it's not okay. And I, I will love any movie that kind of makes you question your own morality and your own thought process by the end of film. To me, that's the twist. The twist in the movie, the whole thing that it's like really in space, like that did nothing for me. Like it because I don't think it was ever set up like this is Earth. Like, it clearly was a very different place. So when they have that moment where they break through the barrier and then they're in space, so it's kind of like, okay, they're in space. And this is the (laughs) one thing I heard about this movie. It has this great twist. And and I was like, that was – all right, I guess. I mean, that's fine. It just didn't affect me negatively or positively. Yeah. And that's why, you know, when I mentioned that I'd seen it in the cinema, like – how dark this film is and when you are in a dark room already and it encompasses you with its its you know dark aspects and even the bright parts of the you know the the lighter aspects of the film are dark in certain ways you know they're fluoro lights which obviously give off a blue mm-hmm. hue and you know the the pictures are distorted by this this darker tone so when you they do break through that wall and when he does finally create Shell Beach in a way and all that bright light comes through, yeah, I do actually remember sitting there and, and blinking because you've been <laughs> in darkness for so long. And that's, that's something that unfortunately in home viewing is, is missed out on a, in a little bit. Yeah. yeah. But I, but I do think that uh, you mentioned like Shell Beach being constantly mentioned throughout this movie. Like it seems like every ten seconds. So by the way, Shell Beach is a thing. Yeah. Just remember that. Uh, but I do feel like it makes the ending really satisfying. Yep. Like when he creates Shell Beach. Like I, I, I had a very different experience than my wife, who was like she thought he was going to create Earth, right? Like all of Earth. And I like that it kept it small. That it was like yeah. this is what he was wanting the whole time. This is what his memories were telling him. Like, this is where you need to go. And I, I found that really satisfying that he got to create that and got to kind of live out the life that he chose at the end of the film. And I, I enjoyed that ending. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's very true. And it's very interesting in that regard. And, you know, maybe that's what sheep are thinking in the paddock. Who knows? <laughs> yeah, hey, could be. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> But going back to the production design of these these villains in a way, and you know, part of me does kind of wish, as you were saying, that there was a little bit more of the, you do you did get a little bit more of them in a in the sense because there are some really creepy elements of them, the way that they talk and the way that they do the tuning, where they essentially yeah. put everybody to sleep, um, and let alone the kid version of them, which is terrifying. <laughs> no thank you yeah yeah and you can certainly i don't know if you're a buffy fan or not but you can certainly get a feeling of i think what there's an episode i haven't seen very many of them but i have seen this particular one where the guys come along and they steal everybody's voices oh yeah Uh, um it's i i might be remembering this wrong but it's like called like hush or something similar similar. and it's 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 one of the most terrifying hours of television i've ever seen yeah like it's it's phenomenal episode but yeah, very similar in, in production design there. Yeah, and very similar in the sense that, you know, you have these beings coming along and and taking away something that feels, you know, it's it's a primal thing. Sleep is a primal thing and Yeah. And I guess when we're when that's taken away from us and we don't even know it, it's frightening. And those scenes where, you know, they're walking through the police station and just going sleep, sleep 
You know, it's like, yeah. oh. <laughs> and then the kid yeah, comes I mean, along. <laughs> and I think it, like you said, it does tap into something primal that sleep is the one time we as humans are completely like we're, we're, you know, we can be attacked. We can be taken out very easily when we're asleep. And it's, it's something that's not like we struggle, like when we do research on evolution, like why this has become a need for like eight hours a day that we have to be completely defenseless. Yeah. You know, most other creatures don't sleep that long. And if they do, they're easily awoken, whereas humans tend to sleep very, very deeply. So the idea that while we're sleeping, literally our whole world is changing is kind of a real fear and something that actually does happen, not in this dramatic way where buildings move. But eight hours go by in the world and a lot happens. You know, the world has changed. So, yeah, yeah. exactly. So do you have anything else to add about production design before we move on to favorite scenes? Um, I just think, um, I just think I'm, I was really impressed by it. Like, I just think it's, it's what, it's what this movie hangs its hat on because like you said, it's in the title. You need, you need a moment in the film where you're not, uh, where you're not judging it, where you're just in it. And I think, uh, I think whoever was in charge in production of I design, which, whether this was all Alex Proyas's idea or not, like, it's just, it's phenomenally done. And like I said, that balance between technology and noir, like it's, it's like being on a knife's edge. Like yeah. it's so easy for that to look silly. And there's not a moment in the movie where it does all of it really works. Yeah. I do highly recommend, um, you know, not everything, don't read everything on his Facebook page, but I do highly recommend to Alex Proyas's, um, Facebook page and looking at the pictures on there specifically, because there are, he does. Don't read his thoughts on critics. Yeah, don't, don't read his thoughts on critics at all. Part of me does wonder, and it, just touching base on that, because it's impossible not to, in this day and age, after his, you know, they're not massive overreactions in a way, but part of me does wonder if you have your film have a commentary by Roger Ebert, you know, kind of, it's, <laughs> it's a bit like, all you other critics should be at the same level, that kind of thing. What you know? You can't come at me and say that my film's crap because, you know, I had a film have a commentary by Roger Ebert. So who are you to tell me about my films? That kind of thing. Yeah, but the other side of that is you can't have Roger Ebert in your corner and then go, "Critics are stupid." Yeah. Like a critic <laughs> made your career, Mister Proyas. Please kindly shut the fuck up and make your movies. And like sometimes you make a bad movie. You just you just gotta bite the bullet. You just gotta own it. Like, Gods of Egypt is a bad movie. Dark City is not a bad movie. You know, we contain multitudes. It's fine. Yeah, and, you know, in that regard, as I was saying, I I highly recommend checking out. I'm currently looking at, in the past few days, and we're recording this in July, he's posted quite a few um, pre-concept drawings, essentially, from Dark City, and they are stunning. And uh, I bet. The work is by a guy named Patrick Tatopoulos. Um, And, yeah, it's really... It's it really imparts what the vision of the film is, and the the current nice. one I'm currently looking at is a picture of one of the the beings flying through the city. And going back to what you're saying about the you know the the design elements of this film looking great, you know, in, in 2016, is that you know even the scenes of a person flying through a city doesn't look fake at all. It looks you know right. And this is this is the time when Lois and Clark was out, and I'm not saying that you know Dark City was 
<laughs> the same budget as Lois and Clark, but you know, yeah, it's yeah, it's, it's pretty <laughs> impressive. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, agreed. Um, so in that regard, what's your favorite scene or or moment from this film? I think actually my favorite scene. There's a scene with uh, Jennifer Connelly's character sitting on a bench, kind of reminiscing about how how she met the main character, and then one of our villains shows up who's been implanted with his memories. Oh yeah, and it's one of it's one of the creepiest sequences I've ever seen. Like it's terrifying because of what we know. So it's really well directed and written in that sense that if we didn't know that he was implanted with these memories, it's nowhere near as creepy. But given that we have that setup, and he starts talking about like he met his wife in the same place. And I think it's just it's tremendously acted by by both of the actors in the scene, too. Mm. It's for a movie that is not particularly subtle. This scene is remarkably underplayed. And I really, really like that moment, you know, and of course, there are other moments in the film I like. I like all the stuff with tuning. You know, I like the kind of fight sequences. I even like the fight sequence near the end. I like the creation sequence at the end. But in terms of like a scene, that scene on the bench really stuck with me. Yeah, it is a it is in a film that is kind of not lacking human emotions in a way, but relatable or human elements. That is certainly right. one of the more. Yeah, powerful moments of the film, and again, it's no it's no criticism of the the actors or anything like that. That's this is just not that kind of story. And right in the in the way that I guess you know, not all Twilight Zone episodes were about the people within it. Sometimes they were just trying to tell a cool story, and right. or an interesting story that made you think. And I think that's what's done very very well here, um, even though it's not perfect. Um, yeah. So in that regard, is this a film that you would recommend to people or is it kind of one of those films that you would only recommend to people that you know might like it? Um, I feel like I would recommend it with with like a caveat or two. You know, I would kind of prepare people. I'd be like, you know, watch this movie for the visuals. It's really cool. It's really enjoyable. But it's maybe not, you know, the cult classic that you've been told it was. But I still think it's it's worth a watch. Like, it, it, at no point was I like, oh, God, why am I watching this? This is <laughs> bad. You know, it's not bad. It's just it's just not complete. Uh, and it almost makes me wish someone would give Alex Proyas, you know, $100 million to make a Dark City remake and then do the do the story again like he wanted to and i think it, it might be a little bit better but i'd still recommend it yeah yeah so i guess in a sub question kind of way as well is this a film that you feel that you might revisit as well in the future i think i probably will um and i did not think i would say that right after i saw it because mm-hmm. i watched this like a week or so ago um but like it is something that despite my issues with it has stuck with me and there have been scenes that I've thought about, like, oh, I'd like to watch that again. So I think it's actually something I might rewatch a couple times and maybe check out Ebert's commentary to see, like, what I'm missing that this was the film of the year in, in 1998. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So do you have a, a film that's not Australian that you might recommend that is similar to Dark City in, in tone or in style? 
yeah, and this time I'll obey your rules and I'll only do one. <laughs> you can do as back. many as you want. It's not a problem. <laughs> well, it's like obviously like the the one obvious pick is the Matrix, but it's like so blatant that I was like, I can't do that. Like everything you ever read about Dark City is be like similar to the Matrix, Dark City, blah blah blah. <laughs> um, so because of the world building and kind of the kind of big idea science fiction. Uh, angle the the first movie i thought of was was terry gilliam's brazil oh yeah um which is a fantastic movie and it's a movie i watched for the first time in high school and i was like i don't get it i don't understand why this is Mm. highly thought of and then i watched it again like five or six years later and it just blew me away and it's just it's an incredible film like i think and it it's one of those that holds up to many many rewatches it's it's one of those few films that you could watch it a tenth time and notice something that you didn't notice like there's so much going on and there's so much world building and there's so many different directions that that movie goes so check out brazil it's also on criterion if you're a if you're a collector and it's a <laughs> beautiful beautiful transfer so check that out it is it is actually and just like uh what's that film again Blade Runner, that's right. Um, no, you son of a bitch. <laughs> just, just like that movie, one of the best movies ever made, Blade Runner. Show show some goddamn respect <laughs> to no, Ridley uh, Scott. Honestly, my mind was bringing out Battle Royale. And I'm like, no, that's that's not it. That's um, not it. It starts with a B. Yeah, it's two words. B, that's it. It's good enough. B R. Yeah, that's it. But just like you know, Brazil and Blade Runner have both also got very. Uh, they've got multiple different versions and stuff like that. And the Criterion Collection of Brazil has got all those special features and the different versions. And as a sub thing as well, I highly recommend, I think it's The Battle of Brazil, which is a really good book, which was Mm. written about the creation of the film. Um, Nice. And I guess, you know, it's a a good apt comparison as well because Terry Gilliam, in a way, is kind of... He's always been that director, which you'd just be like... Why doesn't somebody just give him a hundred million dollars for one film? Right. You know, it's not going to make its right. money back. You're going to lose money, but just right. give him a hundred million dollars. Let him see what do happens. It. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. See what happens. Let him do it, and and I think you know Alex Proyson always kind of already he has been afforded those those things in a way with uh, iRobot. Um, yeah, which I quite like. It's a good film. You know, it's it is a Will Smith vehicle, but you know, I think it does quite a good job. So, yeah. Um, do you have anything else to add about Dark City before we wrap up and people can find where to find you? Yeah, I mean, despite the fact that it, it underwhelmed me just because of the high expectations, like I still think, you know, this is better than most kind of small budget sci-fi you'll see. So I would say, you know, give it a chance. Check out Dark City. It's good. Yeah. And so where can people check out you? As well. Oh, right. Oh, that, that sounds part, like very right, alluring, right. doesn't it? Where can they check Yeah, out well, you, you know, <laughs> part of the show. What are you going to do? Uh, no, I have, a, I have a podcast about uh, psychology and film because I really like watching movies and I am a student in a PhD psychology program. Uh, so those two of my passions kind of intersect here and I do a twice a week podcast, which is insane, which I would not <laughs> recommend anyone do. Uh, and you can find it at, uh, at followingfilms.com. You can find it on iTunes and Stitcher under Pop Culture Case Study, and you can follow me on Twitter at PC Case Study. You've really got that down, Pat. It sounds... It's almost like I've done it a few times, right? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> as I mentioned on the Castle episode, I highly recommend 
checking out Dave's show. It's one of my favorite shows. So just yeah. remember, if you like this show, my show was the inspiration. So <laughs> check out the original. Well, this is this is <laughs> be like a the, hipster and say like I yeah, I, I like the original. I, <laughs> listen, I listened to that guy before it was you know before, before it was, it was big. And this is like the sixth or seventh episode, so you know, hopefully, people have enjoyed the show so far um, and and gotten some entertainment out of it. And you know, one of the things, you know, not to go all retrospective, because really, in real life, you know, just to break down the the podcasting barrier for a second, um, you know, I've only been actually recording this for about three weeks so far, so you know. This is coming out in the future, so I'm talking in the future about the past, which hasn't happened yet. But anyway, one of the things I've enjoyed about this show so far is that, you know, everybody that has come along and, and guested on the show, which has been great, I've really appreciated it, has has actually not seen the films that I've asked if they're, they're keen on covering. And, mm-hmm. you know, I'm not, I don't expect everybody to love the films that, we're discussing and I don't expect them to have positive things to say as you know, dark city has shown. Um, but I, one of the things I find interesting is that everybody has come and provided a really interesting discussion about the film. And that's, that's really good. And, you know, it gives me a bit of hope for Australian cinema in a way. And I'm not saying that, you know, the last new wave is going to be, uh, the, the, the one thing that Australian cinema needs. Um, hey, hey, I am egotistical, but I'm not that <laughs> egotistical. <laughs> I'm not going to get a you know, letter from screen Australia going, Andrew, thank you. Thank very you, much. sir. You have saved us. <laughs> they should give you a statue and a plaque. And <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. One day, one day. But if, you know, if, if there's one thing, one of the main things that I, I started out this podcast for was to try and get people interested in Australian cinema or aware of Australian cinema in a way. And, you know, and the, I guess as a repeat guest, and this is, you know, of course, we've only just started recording in real life two hours ago, but nonetheless, <laughs> um, you know, I, do you feel... I'm trying to phrase this word, this question as best as possible, but do you enjoy the films that have been watched and does this make you want to seek out more Australian cinema? Yeah, I mean, this may seem like uh, kissing the ass of the host, but it really does. Like, I I like that the two movies that we've talked about, uh, The Castle and Dark City, like, these movies could not be any more different. Yeah. <laughs> like, I like the fact that I got, like, this very wide variety. And Dark City was a movie, like I mentioned, that I had always wanted to see it was on my list, and I had no idea it was an Australian film. Hmm. So it's been very eye-opening, and I look forward to, once your, uh, once these episodes drop, to checking out the earlier episodes and watching, you know, movies like Lantana and checking out what Australian mm. cinema has to offer because I think especially in America we get like we get our blinders on because there's so many releases there's so many American films like we're one of the biggest producers of film I think it's probably us and maybe India are yeah. put out the most films so it's easy for movies to get lost like movies from other countries and you know some people have trouble with movies with subtitles and with Australian or New Zealand films like you don't have to worry about that they're in English it's fine <laughs> it's approachable and both of these movies, neither of them have felt like movies that aren't approachable, that movies I can't access. So I'm looking forward to checking out more. You say that and com- completely unaware by the fact that the next film that we're discussing is a film that has subtitles. So, God damn it. <laughs> 
about asylum seekers. So, you know, uh, <laughs> it's, it's a thing. You know? Perfect lead in. <laughs> uh, so once again, Dave, I, I can't thank you enough. And hopefully I'll drag you on in 2019 for another episode of the last new. I'd be happy. I'd be happy to come back anytime. That's it. When you're Absolutely. a doctor, Dave and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Cheers. Right. Bye, I'm going everybody. to make everyone call me that, by the way, as soon oh, as yeah. I get it. Yeah, I expect, <laughs> I expect when my podcast feed updates the day that you become a doctor that it changes from being pop culture case study to be Dr. Dave's uh, digressive hour on entertainment or something That's like that. That's a catchy name. I like yeah. it. Lots of Ds or something like that. Yes. <laughs> I'd be like, oh, DDD's on. Great. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> Anyway, thank you again, and we'll see you next time on Last New Wave. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Last New Wave. You can find more episodes of The Last New Wave on abfilmreview.com, where you can also find episodes of the main show on there as well. Make sure to follow us on Twitter and Facebook at The Last New Wave. And also, if you can leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher, it would be fantastic. It just helps other people find the show a little bit easier. So, at the end of this episode, I mentioned that the next episode I'll be covering a uh, subtitled comedy about refugees. Well, that is coming up, but the next one will actually be a documentary on Pauline Hansen. So, uh, you know, stick around and listen to that. You'll see that pop up in your feed very soon. So once again, thanks for listening. We'll see you on the next episode of The Last New Wave. Love this podcast? Support it and sponsor today. Simply head to OzCastNetwork.com for details. How powerful is the Cox Network? So powerful that one day, the internet will let your doctor perform miracles from thousands of miles away. Connecting to remote operating room. Giving a whole new meaning to the term house call. Operation complete. The Cox Network. With gig speeds everywhere. It's internet built for tomorrow, today. Cox bringing us closer. In Cox serviceable areas, speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Cox terms apply. Other restrictions may apply.